I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And today we discuss one of the most urgent questions involving free speech of our time, namely, does Facebook threaten democratic norms? This week, Mark Zuckerberg faced congressional hearings about Facebook privacy breaches. And in the course of a wide-ranging discussion with Congress, the Facebook CEO addressed questions about to what degree Facebook itself is operating as the main free speech platform in American democracy. Joining us to discuss whether and how Facebook should, should be regulated and how to address the challenges of free speech online are two of America's leading scholars of uh, Facebook, election law, First Amendment law, and technology not law. Nate Persley is James B. McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and recently served as research director for the U.S. Presidential Commission on Election Administration. He's co-author of the Law and Democracy Casebook and is heading up a new initiative uh, assembling scholars to address the question of free speech online. Kate Klonick is a PhD candidate in law and resident fellow at the Information Society Project at Yale. She studies emerging conflicts in law and technology and is the author of a superb forthcoming article in the Harvard Law Review, The New Governors, The People, Rules, and Processes Governing Online Speech. Nate, Kate, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Nate, please start us off by framing the question. In your great article, Can Democracy Survive the Internet, uh, published in the Journal of Democracy, you describe a series of challenges to free speech online, fake news, social media, bots, and propaganda inside and outside the United States, alongside revolutionary uses of new media by the winning campaign combined to upset established paradigms of how to run for president. You said, based on this week's Facebook hearings, how would you define the degree to which Facebook is challenging Madisonian norms of free speech and democracy? Well, I think one of the challenges in even identifying the problem is that uh, people find uh, two sort of contradictory problems with social media and other internet companies when it comes to free speech. On the one hand, uh, people want to make sure that uh, these platforms and the internet in general is widely open and continues to be the primary venue through which, uh, as we say in constitutional law, the poorly financed causes of little people are able to get their voices heard uh, online. I mean, one of the great benefits of the internet is that it does not filter uh, and, 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 and that it allows other speakers besides those who can get on the evening news to have a mass audience. On the one hand, everybody wants greater expression. On the other, uh, people don't like uh, certain speakers having the platform that they do, and they worry about whether it's bots or uh, hate speech or other types of speakers, uh, uh, you know, obscene speech uh, or uh, extremist speech. They worry about that as well, and so they urge Facebook to regulate or other uh, platforms to, to be the sort of new governors, as, as Kate has written. Um, and that then feeds into a third concern, which is that the power of these platforms to then regulate the marketplace of ideas is unprecedented in our history. And so we essentially have outsourced regulation 
from the government to uh, these platforms such that their terms of service, their community guidelines can often, and the decisions they make with respect to the algorithms can often be the most decisive moves when it comes to uh, regulating free speech. I should say that these platforms simply cannot win because they're going to be subject to one criticism, either that they regulate too much or that they're regulating not enough. Um, but that simply highlights the incredible importance they play in our sort of new free speech landscape. Uh, many thanks for setting up the problem so well. Kate, we'll, we'll talk in a moment about how the platforms regulate, as you uh, definitively outline in your article, The New Governors. But I'd love your thoughts on the problem itself. James Madison thought that democracy would falter unless citizens were exposed to different perspectives that they disagreed with and also deliberated thoughtfully over time rather than being guided by reason and passion. And yet the platforms, as you describe in your article, are motivated by different values, consumer uh, pressures, economic pressures uh, that are not set up to promote either thoughtful deliberation or to encourage people to hear different points of view. Can you describe the problem uh, as precisely as you can? Yeah, I think that the problem has changed over time. So I think that when you started having these platforms and when they started realizing that they had to moderate content in a coherent way, which I guess was around 2008, um, that they started that process with the idea that they wanted to try to exactly, as you put it in these Madisonian terms, this idea that they, they wanted as much up as possible. They didn't want to take down as much content. And that had economic concerns um, as well as kind of free speech normative concerns. But um, I think that one of the things that has slowly happened as Facebook has become more and more global and it has like gained um, such a huge market share of the world population. I mean, one of the things that you heard over and over again in the congressional testimony was people pointing out that the number of users on Facebook um, is greater now than like any one country um, or any one nation state. Um, and that, you know, Zuckerberg is this kind of no one, I don't think anyone put in these terms, but a bit of a benevolent dictator over this kind of this, um, this arena. And so I think that what you started off as having kind of um, a baseline and they had free speech norms and they were very American norms that they have shifted in their take on things in response to interest groups that have pushed back in response to exposure that people have um, kind of shown and um, about how they what they want to see on these platforms. And exactly as Nate said, that it is um, it has become um, it has become a marketplace that is so large and kind of encompassing that it's incredibly important how exactly Facebook specifically is regulating in this area um, because it becomes kind of the the way that people are amplifying their speech and where the thoughtful discourse is happening versus, you know, other places in the Internet. Many thanks for that. Uh, Nate. Describe um, what you think the takeaways of the Facebook hearings uh, were. Um, there was certainly no consensus around any particular regulation, although uh, transparency of the source of election ads seems to be getting the most traction. But uh, topics ranging from fake news to uh, privacy breaches were all raised. Um, how would you summarize what the Congress's main concerns were and Zuckerberg's most important responses? Well, one thing that came out of this hearing uh, is that it's quite clear that many members of Congress do not understand Facebook, um, and uh, this to the point where it's clear that some had never even gone on the platform. And so that at least 
gave me pause as to how wise regulation is eventually going to be in this area. I do think there needs to be greater regulation both here and abroad, and as long as it's done in a smart way. Um, but not only is there a danger of overregulation here, but but there's a danger of just of uh, bad regulation in a way that would also be counterproductive. The problems that I saw that were identified obviously grow out of uh, the scandal du jour, which is that um, f first and foremost, people are concerned about um, privacy violations and the fact that Facebook has an enormous amount of data on, on people's um, social interactions and what they do with that data is always open to scrutiny. And so on the one hand, we have the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which is you know, become a metaphor in some ways for Facebook policy, which is uh, in that scandal, you had a researcher who then uh, uh, took data and then gave it to a company which was then um, instrumental or at least uh, helped out in the Trump campaign. And so you had this perfect storm of issues dealing with privacy breach plus manipulation of the alleged manipulation of the electorate through Facebook by an organization that was allied with the Trump campaign. And so those scandals sort of percolated uh, uh, in the hearings and, and you saw concerns about privacy uh, and about um, how the platform may be manipulated. At the same time, though, you did have a completely sort of counter uh, uh, argument um, made by many of the Republican members of Congress and senators, which is that um, Facebook may be overregulating and doing so in a way that is viewpoint discriminatory because they were concerned that um, Facebook would be uh, regulating or editing or, or, or suppressing traffic to more conservative sites in the name of combating fake news or polarization or the like. So, so the tension that I identified uh, at the beginning was sort of came in full bloom in these hearings, which is that on the one hand, they want Facebook to be uh, sort of more regulating of content on the platform and to make sure that they protect privacy. On the other hand, they don't want it to regulate too much in a way that will benefit some speakers and not others. Thanks for that. Well, Kate, in your article, The New Governors, you lay out uh, comprehensively uh, how Facebook and Twitter and Google regulate uh, the procedures that they use and the content reviewers that they resort to. And you say that it is more like a system of administrative law rather than a traditional uh, government or a private company. Um, broadly, it's, there, there's a lot, of course, in your piece, but how would you characterize the standards that the companies are using to regulate uh, free speech? How much do they track First Amendment values and which way are pressures uh, pushing them to change? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, I think that as I kind of write about that, it started off as a very broad kind of um, keep everything up um, unless it makes you feel bad and then take it down um, standard, and that that evolved um, starting in two thousand eight and into you know and is continuing to evolve. They have a very and um, comprehensive and very long and detailed um, internal set of guidelines that they use to moderate speech. Um, and I would say that that's kind of revised in almost a common law system type way in which new facts, new situations um, come in and norms change, just like um, in, uh, in you know, the common law system in the United States, for example. And those rules are interpreted in new ways and updated constantly. So I wouldn't say that they're any one thing at any one time. I know that they get updated uh, a couple of times a week um, and redistributed to people who are doing this content moderation um, but I would say that, that that kind of having a really thorough understanding of that system, um, having kind of 
dug into it and figured out what was actually going on and how things moved through the, this pipeline um, just for any for an average piece of speech or a piece of speech that had been flagged um, was fascinating because it kind of made me very aware of how much effort um, and time and energy that Facebook had put into content moderation before content moderation was the in, the issue that it is today. And if you look at Section 230 and you look at some of the things that were put in place in like the late 90s, that the idea of them was to try to allow some of these um, internet platforms to self-regulate. I don't, I mean, I think that obviously the, the hearings that are going on, the Cambridge Analytica uh, example, show that maybe some of that needs to be curbed by regulation. Maybe we need to rethink some of that. But I do think that it's not nothing to to kind of point out and to really understand how much that these companies do and have put into place in a really comprehensive way um, to address some of these issues of speech and hate speech and things that people don't want to see like kept up or taken down um, and tried to weigh a lot of these issues and are continuing to try to weigh these issues. I mean, I don't I'm not going to kind of be a cheerleader for Facebook, but I just think that it's um, one of the things that, you know, that I heard in the in the after the hearings was um, someone at the week wrote that um, it felt like watching Mark Zuckerberg. It was like Mark Zuckerberg was up there being held accountable for the entire Internet by people who had only lived who had lived the majority of their lives, never having used the Internet at all. And I thought that that was kind of this great moment that there's just there were not sophisticated questions coming from, um, you know, from these senators and um, having an understanding of really what's going on in this field, in this area, which you're reacting to global norms that are moving so fast that you just can't possibly keep regulation on top of um, how these technology companies are going to be able to stay on top of regulating this, that you have to have an understanding of those two things simultaneously. Thanks for that. Nate, tell us about um, what the companies are already doing to uh, respond to the challenges of uh, that they're playing in democracy, and and also to tell us about this new initiative that you're helping to participate in that Facebook has created to provide independent, credible research about the role of social media in elections as well as democracy more generally. What kind of questions will that initiative be asking, and and, and what answers are the companies already grappling with? So first, uh, just to amplify something that that Kate was saying. Um, it's important for listeners to understand that no one believes that the same First Amendment rules that we apply to the government are going to apply to Facebook. The terms of service and community guidelines that Facebook or any of these other internet platforms have all would violate the First Amendment if they were legislated by government. And that is actually what <laughs> we expect to happen in these situations because it's not just that these are private companies, but it is because of the nature of a social media site or a search engine and the like that they're not going to end up abiding by the same First Amendment rules. For example, the rules on obscenity, the rules on nudity, the rules on uh, intellectual property violations, defamation, um, hate speech, terrorist content. There's all kinds of things that, uh, rules that these platforms have, which if legislated would go beyond what the first amendment requires. Nevertheless, we expect them to be a little bit more overly aggressive than the government would be. And now the question is, well, should it expand to other areas like, uh, false speech, uh, you know, other types of, uh, dangers to democracy and the like. More importantly, the nature of a search engine or a social media platform with which has a news feed inevitably requires judgments as to what goes at the top and what goes at the bottom, right? That's different than what you're making a 
decision on, say, in the Boston Commons, right? So you're not going to end up um, having the government make the same kinds of decisions about prioritizing some speech over others in the same way that these uh, algorithms are going to, to make decisions about. So, so that's an important sort of first point. Now, the, then there's the question that you asked about uh, this new initiative and then just generally what kind of research I think needs to be done to investigate the effect of social media on democracy. As Mark Zuckerberg announced, um, they are going to start making data available in a privacy-protected, secure way to social scientists through the Social Science Research Council uh, um, to investigate certain questions about the impact of social media on democracy. These will include areas like polarization, uh, disinformation, election integrity, and the like. Um, the hope is that not only that that you could start with those high-profile areas, and then it could expand uh, beyond, and that this could be a model for data sharing um, for not just Facebook, but for other companies, and for not just elections, but for other areas as well. Um, because of the privacy concerns and the security concerns exhibited by, among other things, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. This only works if uh, users can be assured that this is uh, privacy protected and it's not going to result in the same kind of concerns that came out of that uh, scandal. Uh, many thanks for that. Uh, Kate, um, let's take up the topics that um, Nate just flagged, pol polarization and disinformation. Are the companies addressing those concerns now? And if not, what kind of solutions have you seen that seem most promising in addressing them? Yeah, well, they, they absolutely are. But I think that there's um, so there's a couple of things and that came up during um, that have been brewing for a while and came up during the hearings. One is the Honest Ads Act, um, which is kind of going to um, and which Zuckerberg has said that he supports. And that's kind of um, the idea of that is to have um, Internet um, intermediaries like Facebook be held accountable in the same way that radio and television and satellite intermediaries are accountable um, in terms of disclosure for um, for political advertisements. Um, it's unclear to me uh, with something like that, at least right now, how that type of legislation is going to end up helping being implemented by a site like Facebook, um, which has in my as far as I understand, like a very different scale and scope in terms of how people place political advertisements versus how you do it for radio or TV, which might make it very, very difficult or almost impossible to actually do a reliably good job, um, given the amount of money that people can, I mean, you can just buy $200, you could buy 10,000 10, ads all over the world for $200 um, for Facebook to chase each of those ads down and try to reliably determine whether or not they were born by, or they were bought by foreign nationals is kind of a really hard Hard, surprisingly hard task to do on the internet. And then it's also um, kind of runs straight into some First Amendment issues um, about foreign nationals abroad that, or excuse me, uh, U.S. citizens abroad that are, would like to possibly buy, buy political ads and exercise First Amendment rights. So there's, there's, there's a few things that are going on um, from the, from the congressional side. Um, and the platform side, I think that like, really one of the things that Nate talked about and the, the initiative that he described, they're, they're really trying to open this up to to um, the academic community is what I've just been I've really been hearing. They're holding uh, a number of panels, hackathons, um, ideas where they're trying to kind of figure out the best solution because these are just really hard, hard questions. They're not um, they're not things that um, they're not things that I, I think that are intuitive to anyone as to how they can be solved. At least I haven't 
I, you know, a lot of smart people are thinking about this problem, and I don't see a really one consensus emerging about how to solve like the issue of fake news. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this might end up coming down to a certain sense of um, how people themselves end up becoming educated. And I, I kind of don't want to be, say that like, oh, this is all about education, um, but I do think it is. There is an awareness that has been raised in the last year about what's going on on online and how people speak online and what they're reading online that has completely changed in the wake of the 2016 election. Um, and if nothing else comes out of, in my opinion, the, the fake news debate, the fact that people really, I think, have um, a, like, a, like a lexicon and an idea that stuff out there is not everything that they read is not necessarily true just because they're reading it. Um, it's, it's actually been a huge um, change in how the internet conducts business, I think, uh, as, you know, as a democracy. Thanks for that. Nate, I know your commission will be looking into these questions, but tell us what the most promising uh, solutions to the question of polarization and disinformation you've seen so far are, and what kind of directions for research do you anticipate uh, the, the project identifying for new solutions? So uh, talking first about ads, uh, paid for ads versus unpaid, it's important to understand that one of the sort of features of the internet uh, generally, leaving, leaving aside Facebook in particular, is that it's extremely difficult to draw some of the legal lines that we have in the offline world or in the pre-internet world. So what's the difference? So the line between what is paid communication versus unpaid communication is extremely difficult to draw. What is, who are the media versus the non-media? When anybody can blog or post or, or the like, we used to think of the media as getting special, if not First Amendment rights, at least legal treatment. What is political, right, or non-political is also extremely difficult uh, to draw so that if you have disclosures with respect to advertisements that are political advertisements, how do you treat, say, a Budweiser beer commercial that has a kind of immigration theme to it, which is uh, something that we've seen in the Super Bowl and others? What is campaign communication versus non-campaign communication? Always a very important line that's drawn in campaign finance law, very difficult to draw uh, when you look at online. Um, and for, as Kate mentioned, what is foreign and what is domestic when the, the web is worldwide after all. So how can you figure out a way to uh, regulate foreign actors uniquely because we might think that uh, election regulation should be particularly about the sovereignty of a country to regulate. So all those things are, are extremely difficult to, to deal with. Facebook has, has ways of trying to get at that. I actually think the paid communication side of things is the lowest hanging fruit here and that um, Facebook's initiative for disclosure on um, of online ads is something that they will be largely successful in doing and I think the other internet platforms should follow suit. Um, Frankly, I don't see why some of these platforms just don't say, look, we're not going to have any election-related ads on our on our platform. In terms of the bottom line, it is a tiny amount of advertising for them to give up. But at least Facebook is going in the direction of having uh, greater disclosure, and I hope the other uh, platforms will follow suit. With respect to disinformation... Facebook and other platforms have been doing a lot already to try to combat disinformation. And a lot of this has to do with different ways of having fact-checking and disclosure and uh, tweaking the algorithm so that some types of content are favored over others. And that, that's where things get really dicey because you have to make certain decisions about um, the 
likely reliability of one piece of communication over another. But for example, um, Facebook announced this a long time ago that one way they are sort of prioritizing information in the algorithm is that if you forward something to your friends on Facebook, uh, it is more likely to appear high in their feeds if they have engaged with it. And by, by that, we mean uh, there is a problem of sort of clickbait forwarding on Facebook where people, if they just look at the headline and it's an incendiary headline, they just forwarded it without actually looking at the article. Um, and that is uh, one way to try to get at the virality of the disinformation problem, which is to say, well, look, only if people have engaged with the article, that they've actually read it, would we prioritize that in their friend's newsfeed. They all, Facebook also did a sort of large-scale experiment with these fact-checking organizations that then would flag some of the items as disputed. Unfortunately, one thing we realized is that if you flag content on a news feed and say in big letters, this is disputed, people get more interested in it, so they might be more likely to engage with it. Uh, and so they've, they've retreated from that. Uh, and this just sort of goes to show you what a social media platform can do, which is they have a kind of iterative process to try to deal with this problem. Um, and so they, they try things really on a weekly basis to try to get at the disinformation problem. Can I just can I just add to very, that? Very, very interesting. Please, yeah, please add, Kate. And, and just it's so fascinating to hear the platform's effort to experiment with uh, discouraging the sharing of fake news and then responding. Tell us whether you think, given the values that drive the companies, which you describe as as much commercial and based on popularity as constitutional, you think they're procedurally equipped to kind of uh, deal with this problem of polarization and disinformation. Yeah. So to, to Nate's point, just I think that's super interesting in the, the example that he just gave about them going through the experiment of showing that they thought that certain types of news articles were perhaps fake news and it creating actually more interest and engagement than they expected. The other interesting fallout of that um, that, I, that I know was tested by a few um, um, psychologists at Yale was um, that they found that people became wary of anything that didn't have a label on it. So that by by labeling one way or the other, they didn't trust anything, or they thought that something just hadn't been labeled yet, or they like there just was a really there was a hard problem. So there you had like this very easy solution. I think that people after fake news, why can't why can't Facebook just tell us what's fake news? And there's all of these kind of very interesting, I think, kind of cognitive psychological problems and social um, social um, phenomenon that kind of fall out of these questions um, that seem to be like basic regulatory questions, but actually end up being very human questions about how we react to data and how we react to news um, and how we react to kind of um, kind of the design of these systems that are uh, that we're posting through. Um, and this is I thought that was a great example. Um, I'm sorry, Jeff, what was your question that you wanted me to follow up on? Uh, whether moving forward, the platforms are uh, equipped to uh, address this question of uh, polarization and fake news, given that their values, as you and they both describe them, are as much uh, commercial and economic and driven by popularity rather than uh, constitutional and Madisonian. Yeah, well, I think that they have to because I think that they're, the, the people are starting to really, there is like, there's a, there's a, people are pushing them to, to deal with these issues. And so if they don't, if they don't do it, then I think that, um, or they don't give the appearance of doing it, that there certainly will, they, People will um, either disfavor the platforms, or they'll kind of wane, or something else might come into the, the into the space. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about, but I think is really interesting, is also the idea that um, you know that is coming out of some of the stuff with Europe and um, GDPR and some other things that is really showing that like 
until very recently, Facebook has operated its um, online content moderation policy under a glo- one global policy that they more or less, well, they keep in, they're in keeping with all of the laws of various states. Besides the state laws, they may, they have one policy that they enforce. And what I think you might see, and I think is maybe on the horizon for some of these problems, um, is that uh, the way that they'll start dealing with this is to create teams that specialize in various areas or around various languages, and that you'll see a balkanization of the internet and the type of internet for different areas. And I think that, I mean, that's kind of speculation, but that's something that I've heard that they're looking into and that they're thinking about experimenting with um, very seriously. And it's not just, um, it's not just kind of the norms for speech. It's also kind of the, um, some of the norms for privacy and, and a lot of other things. And so I think that that's, you know, that's also like a, a huge sea change in what we've thought of as the internet in general and kind of the the universal potential of the internet and that we're kind of all seeing the same thing. Can I add one thing here, which is that I don't think the commercial incentives are actually the barrier to dealing with either disinformation or polarization. That um, for the most part, I mean, my discussions with the social media companies and internet folks generally, there are two barriers to dealing with this. One is allegations of political bias. And you saw that in the hearings this week, because if your efforts to combat disinformation are favoring some ideas over others, which inevitably is going to be the case, um, then there's allegations that you are favoring one political party over another. The second is the international context in which Kate was describing. So that if you start making decisions mm-hmm. about how the algorithm is going to treat something as false or uh, otherwise disfavored, um, that has all kinds of spillover effects uh, globally. So that it, that type of technology, if developed, does not stop with um, measuring sort of false news in an American election campaign. It has spillover effects in how you deal with, say, uh, countries that have rules about blasphemy, uh, to deal with other uh, kinds of harmful speech to the government in, in other countries. And so once they develop that technology and make it more robust, it doesn't stop there. One last thing, uh, just to amplify what Kate said, which is that these the, the, all these internet companies, the big ones, already have the, the uh, special teams to deal with different countries, especially in the context of election-related speech. Because you know, South Korea, for example, its election commission has uh, ordered the taking down of over a hundred thousand individual Facebook posts over the last uh, ten years or so. Uh, France has very different rules about what can uh, be on the platform, say, forty-eight hours before an election, so that, for example, when there was a kind of Russian slash Wikimedia uh, or not Wikimedia, uh, Wiki, uh, WikiLeaks dump uh, within 48 hours of their election, Facebook did restrict the content to uh, French viewers uh, in that election. And so they have to deal with these problems already because of different election related regulations in different countries. Yeah. And this is so I think that exactly what Nate said. And then so what I'm kind of talking about in terms of the balkanization is that within all of those state laws, within kind of the, the like the strictures that they're operating the teams they've come up with. They have been, op- as far as I know, have been operating under, then there is a level of speech at which Facebook decides what comes down and stays up that is separate from the laws of the, the country. And so kind of that law and those sets of laws have been more or less universal. And I think that there's going to be a movement towards those becoming a little bit, um, a, a little bit more um, splintered um, and split up by region or language barriers. Um, the, the other thing that I was going to say that uh, is kind of gets back to some of the things that Nate talked about um, at the hearing about the the threats of people um, being afraid of conservative speech, and I think gets back to some of the suits that you're seeing filed right now. There have been a number of suits in California um, and other places filed against Twitter. 
Um, I think one was just uh, dismissed, actually, in the U.S. District Court with Judge Coe. But it was um, it was basically uh, there are cases that um, conservatives suing Twitter um, and other platforms um, claiming First Amendment discrimination um, or viewpoint discrimination under the First Amendment as these these platforms as state actors. And they're kind of trying to link in. Um, an argument that because these are, these platforms are so large that they're kind of like company towns or they're they're um, you know the public square and so um, there's viewpoint discrimination. This is something you saw Ted Cruz uh, take up in the hearing, which um, was kind of surprising, frankly, because it's um, as Nate said, if you hold these companies to a First Amendment standard, you get an internet that nobody really wants, and that there is a lot of policing that these companies do to show us um, an internet that we, we know that we actually want to see. But I think that that, um, that kind of balance is going to become increasingly difficult in the next couple of, um, in the next couple of years. Very interesting. Well, you've both identified these two challenges, uh, accusations of political bias and the global impact. Nate, since Kate just mentioned lawsuits in her article, she does discuss the Supreme Court's ruling in the Packingham case, which treats uh, social media platforms as uh, modern public squares. Uh, So to what degree will the courts play a role in responding to accusations of political bias? And may some of these questions end up as constitutional ones? Yeah, I can actually talk about that a little bit. Um, Great. The yeah, the um, so I think that uh, so so the interesting thing that happened um, in June of 2017 was um, you had um, Packingham versus North Carolina, which when North Carolina had passed a law that forbids sex offenders um, to uh, to sign up for um, any social media accounts. And they brought a First Amendment um, suit and the court said um, throughout the law and said, yeah, this is not constitutional, um, that basically uh, that there is. That the and this was a very it was very broad, so it both said a lot and said very little. Um, in that it said that there was um, a First Amendment right of access to social media, broadly defined as whatever that means, um, and uh, and that uh, that they compared um, these uh, social media platforms to the public square, and so that's one of the things that kind of people have been like hooking their wagon to, so to speak in making kind of some of the claims in this law, in these um, most recent lawsuits that have been coming through um, these claims of conservative bias. But I think that it's it's still, it kind of gets to a Marsh v. Alabama and a company town question, which is still like, it might be um, access to social media might be um, a public square, but that still doesn't mean that it's um, get so far as to be a state actor. It's just a very, there's there's a lot of, of room in between um, running a fire department, running a police station, running a postal service, doing all the street repair um, and the garbage like pickup, and then also um, the you know the sidewalks, um, and then just kind of having the sidewalks. And you know you can start to argue that Facebook is doing more and more, and people are, but it still seems like the internet in general is such a profoundly large space that they're you're going to have to make a pretty robust. Um, showing, which I don't think we're even close to doing just on a factual level, uh, that Facebook is is butting up against this um, dominant market of all online speech in general. Uh, fascinating. Thanks for that. Those thoughts on the legal landscape. And Nate, maybe you could tell us more about the second question, the global spillover effects, the degree to which tweaks in the algorithm may have effects on international political movements and what you think the platform should do about that. Well, 
the, the play, platforms are in an unwinnable position um, to some extent it's of their own making but but there's um, these problems of push for greater transparency greater openness um, more being more like a state actor are in conflict with all of the other push that they should be doing more to regulate fake news to de decrease polarization to provide a healthy environment right a healthy sort of marketplace of ideas and so they they either they're going to get blamed if they regulate and they're going to get blamed if if they underregulate let me just say first that to some extent we are blaming the social media companies and the internet in general for the pathologies of our politics generally, right? So that the uh, problems of polarization, the problems of, of uh, sort of neo-populism, rising sort of extremist politics and the like are happening in the offline world as well. To some extent, the internet is fanning the flames of this, but take something like polarization, which you, you raised, which is that polarization, it's not so clear that polarization, say, on Facebook is any more pronounced than it is in our offline lives. And so whether you're talking about the number of sort of friends you have who are of different political persuasions and the like, you're probably more likely to run into someone who is politically different than you in your Facebook feed than you are in your neighborhood. That's not going to be true for everybody, but that the, the studies that have been done uh, are, are showing th this type of phenomenon. Now, in the international context, you know, this is the, the challenge, which is that on the one hand, they, they do have to have some kind of uh, industry or sort of country-specific regulations and, and treatment and the like. But what we're witnessing with these social media companies is that they have a reach such that responding to legal incentives, legal regulations in one country that has spillover effects elsewhere, to some extent that might be good. So, for example, the privacy regulations in Europe may lead to uh, sort of spillover effects in the United States so that there's greater protection of privacy. In other areas, it's bad because um, the when it comes to free speech, for the most part, the United States is a complete outlier. Our views on the First Amendment and free speech are much more libertarian than any other place in the world. Now, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but one of the things that other countries see, they don't just see these social media companies as uh, sort of neutral um, uh, multinational corporations such as they are. Um, they are exporters of American culture and values. And so most of these companies, whether you're talking about, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon, um, uh, Apple, right, they come from basically the West Coast of the United States. And uh, they are seen as exporting our views about culture and, and about speech. And so they are treated uh, to some extent as as making impositions on the culture and sovereignty of these other countries as well. And so it should be no surprise that then they're regulated accordingly. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that the the idea that these that these platforms are seen as exporters of American cultural values and a very particular set of American cultural values, a Silicon Valley set of cultural values and libertarian kind of philosophy of free speech um, that is very unique. And it's it's also interesting. I mean, one of the things that I really ran into as I was um, as I was kind of doing some of this research and talking to people and especially talking about how they trained moderators to to enforce some of these policies was that um, was how much, um, you know, I was for a while in the, in my paper, I was calling them calling them uh, that they were training people in India or people in the Philippines on a neutral set of principles. And then I quickly realized that they were not at all neutral. They were just what I was used to. And they were, in fact, they were a very American set of kind of uh, of uh, free speech values with like a few carve out exceptions. Um, and that I think that what Nate said, we're seeing um, we're seeing some spillover effects. And I think you're also seeing um, kind of a like a 
kind of a reaction from global nation states that are realizing they don't have a stake in these kind of giant American companies and um, a way to push back. And they're trying to push back in this kind of this kind of very new global struggle. I just don't think that we've seen um, we've ever seen something exactly like this. It's not like a it's not like an oil company. It's not like, you know, it's not like a transnational oil company or a transnational, you know, breakfast cereal company or anything. It's just it's like a complete it's fun, something that governs fundamental access to knowledge, fundamental rights of speech. Um, and those are those are just the stakes become so much higher at that point. Great. Uh, Nate, you raised a very interesting uh, suggestion. You said that uh, polarization uh, is greater offline than online. We know that the big sort and geographic self-sorting have met, made red and blue America live in ge different geographic areas. And you suggest online people may be more likely to confront different points of view rather than segregating themselves into filter bubbles. If you could wave a magic wand based on what we know now, what could the platforms do to most guarantee that people were confronted with points of view that were different than their own? So when people talk about polarization, they often think about several different phenomena at once. One is the what we call homophily, which is the likelihood that you are going to talk to and interact with someone who is most like you uh, politically. And, and that's one thing that you were uh, describing. And so right now, I mean, sort of the question usually is, well, how can you force people to interact online or, or be exposed to information that they otherwise would not choose? Now that is actually, so leave it aside Facebook for a second, take search engines, for example. That is exactly opposite what you would want from a search engine, right? Is to give you irrelevant information or information that is different than the one that you seek out. The way that Google's search works is that you put in a query and then based on uh, both that query and your other behavior online, they then make a decision about what's the most relevant information to you. And so to then say, well, no, actually we want to expose you to something you don't think is important to you or relevant goes directly to the whole uh, purpose of search. Um, and so there, there are some fundamental uh, questions uh, at issue there. Um, nevertheless, you could think as, as Facebook has now done with sort of suggested news items that they will often put other sources alongside certain types of, if not biased sources, sources that are that have a reputation for one type of side or the like, so that then you can at least have in your visual feed some other kinds of information that compete for your attention alongside the ones that might be predisposed you might be predisposed to look at. But as I said before, the, the algorithms make judgments about what you should see. And the question is, how much should your other behavior online or the other information that these platforms know about you then feed into the kind of information and communication you are exposed to? So the, if, you are, if it's a social media uh, setting and for the most part you're getting information that's sent to you by your friends, um, the degree to which your friends are like you is going to affect the communication that you receive. Now, take it away from the, the, the most notorious actors or the most uh, visible ones here, but to the other sort of more dark corners of the internet. There's no question that, that sites like 4chan and 8chan and the like have become sort of repositories and cesspools for hate speech and, and, and Nazi uh, affinity groups and the like. Um, 
Um, and even subreddits, right, uh, the, the firm Reddit has to confront this and they have certain regulations on that. So that problem is not really like a homophily problem, a problem of, well, the average user is getting exposed to stuff that is predisposed uh, or prepositioned for their ideas. But the Internet now allows people of extremist ideologies from uh, across the world to find safe havens to sort of uh, develop conspiracy theories like the so-called Pizzagate controversy and the like. And so that is also, that, it's not clear to me that the firm, that, that is a solvable problem. So long as there's an internet out there that allows for that kind of free exchange of information, you're going to have, you know, Black Lives Matter and and uh, uh, Me Too movement have their websites and you're going to have these hate groups that are going to have theirs. Um, the question is, as these firms get sort of control more of the speech marketplace, are there things that they can do to try to set the boundaries for what is sort of the acceptable marketplace of ideas? Yes, that's the central question, as you put it. And, and Kate, in your in your piece, you're uh, not sanguine, but, but, but at least uh, uh, respectful of the company's efforts to balance uh, laws and competing values when it comes to the regulation of hate speech. What concerns you most from a constitutional point of view about the platforms? We've discussed uh, algorithms that target based on your preferences, based on constitutional values and filter bubbles and uh, fake news. Which which of these problems do you think the platforms are not equipped to deal with and what's the solution to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess I'm a little afraid that... um, so I, I made this compare. I, I was kind of thinking, you know, my argument um, in the paper is that these that these platforms are governance of some in some sense. But one thing that I don't make the argument is that they're not like governments. They're not nation states. They don't have these elections. They don't have uh, direct accountability to. Um, we didn't elect Mark Zuckerberg. No, you know, they are. They're. They're. They've put these systems in place to run, like to to restrict or liberate certain rights that we have, but. They, you know, they, they don't have this kind of direct accountability. Um, but what I have kind of realized in the last um, couple of weeks with everything with Cambridge Analytica is that what puts makes them very different from nation states is that they are just really um, bound up um, to having to stay relevant and having to um, maintain a reputational um, level, much more so than, you know, if France the government does something, they'll have elections and they will like a year later, like election, put in an issue in an, um, a new era, usher in a new era of, um, of leaders. Um, and you're going to, you you see Facebook kind of struggling to do this so they don't become irrelevant and they stay um, on top. And I guess I'm a little afraid of uh, the overcorrection and um, that they, that they correct too much um, in the direction of taking things down or trying to, um, trying to meet the um, the needs of everyone who wants things taken down online, from hate speech to terrorist content to um, to um, offensive media. Um, I think that one of the things that you know Nate is talking about totally correctly, and I couldn't agree with more, which is that like, listen, um, there's always been um, kind of um, a bias that we've had in aligning um, in a filter bubble, so to speak. Um, offline and online. That's the magazines you subscribe to. It's whether like your church group that you're a part of or whether you do Boy Scouts or, you know, where you spend like your, you know, your Thursday afternoons, um, that there are like these kinds of these communities that we decide to like associate with. And the difference online is that they're frictionless and that you can kind of uh, navigate between them incredibly quickly. Um, And you can just 
go to certain ones, I think Facebook is actually a bastion of like, okay, at least you have the option of seeing some things that might not um, might not agree with you as you're flipping through a newsfeed, um, even if the algorithm makes it more rare. But if you're going to one particular subreddit, as as um, as Nate kind of highlights, or one particular you know website where your entire community is, you're just going to find like-minded people, and you're never going to have your you know your ideas challenged. So I guess those are kind of um, the two things: is that actually um, that Facebook over over ends up over censoring and over take, taking down too much content out of a fear of of kind of PR backlash and that it ends up kind of neutralizing the site to such an extent that um, you don't have alternative viewpoints uh, the way that you need to have them uh, to really have it be kind of the robust public forum I think it's the potential for being. Um, fascinating. Nate, I'm going to just ask you this because I'm very eager for the answer. Madison defined faction as a mob majority or minority animated by passion rather than reason and motivated by self-interest rather than the public good. Do the platforms make that sort of faction easier to mobilize and what should we do about it? Well, I think the internet allows for those factions to be more easily mobilized um, and to the extent that the, you know, Facebook and Google and the, and the like are, are accelerators of that, I suppose that they do as well. Um, but, you know, so, so the discussion of faction in, in, in Federalist 10 is one that um, is, you know, we tend to say, all right, th these are the problems, right? These are, these are interest groups that are, are competing to take over government and that they're sort of the evils and mischiefs of faction. Uh, which the American constitutional system is trying to uh, counteract. Um, the, the basic fact of the Internet is that we do not have intermediaries that are filtering communication as we do in the offline world. Now, Walter Cronkite, when a third of the American population was tuning into his broadcast, uh, served an incredible public purpose, uh, and, and uh, he was sort of the voice of you know, just the facts. Um, and he would end his broadcast by saying, um, that's just the way it is. Now, no one can actually claim to do that in the internet age. It's not clear even in the cable age that that was possible. And so, um, you know, the, the, whether it's Madison or the other framers did not, they were not big fans of, uh, pure democracy. And so they thought that all of the institutions that they were setting up in the constitution would mediate uh, the different factions that would uh, be developing. And so I think that in the internet age, there is, it's the problem of a lack of intermediaries that is really the, the challenge, but that's also the beauty of the internet because just as Walter Cronkite was um, maybe a sane voice of reason during his time, there are certain types of issues that don't get covered in that media environment that do find an audience on the, on the internet now. And so um, the populism, which is inherent to the internet, um, has both costs and benefits. Uh, wonderfully put. Kate, is there any uh, alternative to the intermediaries that used to uh, promote uh, reason rather than passion, either within the companies themselves or outside of them. Yeah, just to build on Nate's, that was that was excellent. Um, just to build on what Nate just said, which is that um, I think that what you would see developing in kind of almost um, like a, out of the vacuum kind of way is that you are seeing tastemakers develop, and that the, we are relying on different types of um, different types of um, independent 
um, forum to kind of uh, to make some of these uh, decisions for us. Um, and whether that is uh, the development of um, certain new types of um, press intermediaries or watchdog groups or civil society is becoming much more, I think, is becoming a huge voice um, in this space right now. I think that you um, see a number of um, civil society groups and NGOs that are kind of um, starting to assert themselves in this area. I think that they balance some of the groups. You could also say that they are themselves factions, but I think that I think that there's um, I think that there's a lot to be said for um, exactly what Nate said, which is that there's not you don't want like a direct populism with everything that's um, happening on the internet. Although it is, I think, at first glance, I think at the very beginning seemed to be kind of the the great hope of what the internet could be, um, and that that what's happened in the last couple of years has shown how um, there do need to be kind of more intermediaries to kind of uh, to guide people through um, what is just like a terrific massive information uh, and access to information. Fascinating. Well, this is, I would uh, love to continue this remarkable uh, discussion, but we need to sum it up. So I'm going to ask for closing arguments and ask you to just condense as intensely as you can the answer to this question, which is the one we've been discussing so well, uh, if a problem of the internet is that it promotes a populism that leads to polarization and disinformation, what uh, solutions uh, have you identified and could you identify that you think might best address that problem? Uh, Nate, first to you. So just to talk about the problem for a second, there is a fundamental question that I think the internet is posing for democracy, and that is whether... The unregulated marketplace of ideas is the best test for truth. It's been a kind of bedrock principle of First Amendment law that we have abided by in the United States. And it's not clear it was ever true, but in the Internet age, there's reason to think that it's particularly untrue. And so related to that is the fact that it is the democratic character of the Internet which is posing the threat to democracy, right? It is the fact that all speakers have the ability to uh, speak uh, and and that there are no intermediaries. That is the challenge to democracy. Now, what to do about it is complicated, and it, it... maybe requires government action, action by the platforms as well as uh, civil society. The types of regulation fall into several uh, buckets. Um, it requires, but, but all of them are having an effect on speech, and we should not shy away from that. That is inevitably what is going to happen here, which is whether it is deletion of content, censorship on the internet, demotion of the content through um, uh, tweaks to the algorithms, delay in what people see online as to whether they whether we can combat virality and the speed of information, uh, as well as um, uh, deterrence against certain actors on the internet, whether it's foreign or domestic or profit-seeking, to try to uh, increase the costs of bad behavior uh, and, and reward uh, better behavior. And then finally is something that Kate mentioned, which is sort of dilution of bad content online to make sure that the sort of relative share of information that people receive of, of the sort of harmful content or the things that we think should be avoided is outweighed or subsumed uh, by, by more sort of public-facing, um, um, healthier content online. But all of those pose classic First Amendment free speech questions about whether some outside authority, the government or others, is making a decision of what's good for you. And and everybody should be concerned about that uh, at each step step of the regulatory uh, uh, parade. 
Absolutely fascinating. Kate, last word to you and the same question. If the fundamental problem of the Internet is that the populism and democratic character that it promises also can lead to polarization and disinformation, what are some of the most promising solutions to that problem? Yeah, I think that it's um, there's a few things. And one of them is that we have to think about what it is that we really want to preserve in the Internet um, going forward. And that's not just with Facebook, but I think that that's kind of like a question of like what it is that we actually think that the Internet is best at providing for us. Um, and then and that's that's something that's also part of being kind of a citizen in kind of this new age of um, of Internet use is that if these all of these sites are governing you, you really should be um, you shouldn't be like those senators in those hearings. You should have a better sense of exactly what it is they're specifically doing. And while some might say that it's difficult to discern, then know what you can know and then you know, fight back on the rest. Uh, that being said, I think that there's also a lot that these companies can do. Um, and I actually think that like the tech kind of got us into this mess and tech will get us out. I, I think that there is a certain amount to, to be said for um, kind of eschewing the, the, the more traditional notions of regulation in this space. Like I think there's a big, there's always a very big, um, there's always a very big push to kind of regulate um, when we're unhappy about something. But I think that some of these issues, even the fake news scandal has evolved in just a year about how serious we thought it was, how pronounced we think it is, what exactly happened. Um, and if we had regulated very quickly, I think that we could have put in place some rules that really would have been um, incredibly bad for online speech and incredibly bad um, for free speech. And I think that it's the type of thing that the more you kind of leave some of these problems open and create Right. If you were going to regulate, regulate to create dialogue between um, regulate to create dialogue and accountability between some of these um, these platforms and their users, um, rather than direct regulation about what are what these platforms should be doing or should not be doing. Thank you so much, Kate Klonick and Nate Persley, for a really illuminating, fresh and uh, valuable discussion of this central problem of free speech, technology and democracy. We were lucky to have you both in a studio at Stanford uh, today, and the National Constitution Center will be back at Stanford Law School on May 3rd for a further discussion of the, these fascinating topics. We, the people listeners, hope you'll check out both discussions. And Nate, Kate, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Organa Etze and Scott Bombo. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's Town Hall programs. There's credits for in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. And remember, dear We the People listeners, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit Despite our inspiring congressional charter, we receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity, passion, engagement, and appreciation of lifelong learners like you around the country who are devoted to teaching ourselves about the Constitution. Please consider becoming a member to support our efforts, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.